0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to With That Said, the podcast focused on helping and inspiring black millennials to survive workplace culture. I'm your inspiration coach, Amira Lawson, and thank you for joining me today. If you like my podcast, be sure to follow me on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can always reach me at withthatsetpodcast at gmail.com, and don't forget to follow me on Instagram, podcast or on Facebook, podcast, where you can join our community. I look forward to hearing from you, Now, let's get into the conversation. Hello, hi,
1: hey, are we better? Yeah, I think we're good now.
0: Oh, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to What That Set podcast. Today, I have a really exciting guest. He is my first male guest, and I'm very, very, very happy that he agreed to join me on the podcast today. His name is Troy Neal. Um, And before I turn it over to Troy, I want to just take a moment and acknowledge uh, the status of our country today and to send prayers of mercy, of grace, of faith to uh, George Floyd's family um, and to everyone in the Minneapolis area and to everyone, um, every person of color who may be struggling at this time. So just so you know, everybody here at What That Said podcast is with you. Um, and we have our arms around you. So it's a very heavy topic right now. And then I'll turn it over to Troy. Uh, Troy?
1: Hey, what's up?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, Amira. I really appreciate this. And like, like you said, it's a really pivotal time in our country, and a lot is going on, especially for Black folks. So, you know, I think it couldn't be even more um special that I'm on this podcast at this particular time and I'm the first male which I take pride in so I I really appreciate you having me on as well
0: thank you I'm happy to have you and as we think about the conversation about about you know people of color and our you know and what's going on today I know I asked you prior to us getting on the podcast um I sent you A question, And I asked you if you would be comfortable talking about what it was like to be a father of a black boy um, in today's current climate. So I wanted to kick off our conversation there, um, just because I think where we are today, we kind of we really can't skate past that. Um, And I think that it's a great translation, a great transition into the conversation about how you plan to prepare him to survive as a man of color in in the working world. And whatever that means for you, obviously, is for your family. But. Um, I'm a mother of three boys myself, um, so I have all boys, and I have to tell you, um, it's very difficult to think about what it's going to be like to send them out into the world. Um, you know, it's the, the crazy world that we live in. I just wrote an article actually that I published on LinkedIn, which really talked about the trauma I faced as a woman of color raising a, a black boy in a you know predominantly white neighborhood affluent neighborhood and just the challenges and struggles we faced, um, um, you know, just in our short time here. And it hasn't even been two years. So I wanted to hear from you because this episode is all about, I mean, you know, I speak for the women mostly, but this web episode is mostly for the men and for the women who are concerned about how men think. So I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts around raising a black boy in today's climate and and how are you and your wife managing that?
1: yeah thank you um so like you i have three kids i have two beautiful girls i have my oldest is a girl and she is eight and my youngest who is two months is a girl um and then i have the middle boy my boy uh my son his name is jelani and uh he's two years old so even and i'll kind of like tie in a little bit my background as well because it kind of like translates to all of this Like even before having kids, like just as a single person or somebody as uh, a young African-American raised in America, I I kind of always thought about like how challenging it would be to have a son Um, just from the stuff I've gone through. And not to say I've gone through anything more challenging than any other black man, but just the normal everyday occurrences of of being black in America, especially as a black male. So um, my wife and I, we met in college. Um, we dated for a while. Um, well, we dated for a few years and then after we graduated college, we ended up getting married. Um, so she's, um, an entrepreneur. She's a fashion, um, stylist. So she works with a lot of celebrities. She works with, um, television networks. She's worked with a lot of like high profile professional women who use her services to, um, basically update their wardrobe or transition back from birth or you need a closet cleanse or whatever the, the situation calls for. So she's kind of a, um, an, art, an artist um a creative. So me, I, I grew up um, in New York City. I was uh, oldest of three uh, from a family of a single mom. So I've always kind of had business mentality just out of necessity. I've just kind of been, um, for lack of a better word, like a hustler in terms of just figuring out, navigating the world as, you know, I needed to while my mom worked two and three jobs to raise us. So um, that kind of all translates into, you know, how I ended up where I'm at professionally. So right now I'm a commercial banker. I'm a vice president at a large um, national bank, and I'm also pursuing my executive MBA at Columbia Business School. So all of those different uh, views of life in terms of where I grew up, I grew up, you know, in a fairly, like, like lower middle class um, neighborhood, um, a lot of people of color in, like, Queens, in Jamaica, Queens, New York. Mm-hmm. and um, And just translating that to, like, the, the things I've seen just in the corporate world and even at Columbia and just in some of the other schools I've gone to um, just really frames it that you know that there's a time where people look at you different um, as a black boy. So I remember and I was always in activities really because my mom was working all the time. So she was like, you know, oh, they're signing. They got soccer team. Oh, you're going to go sign up for that. Oh, they got a you know, basketball team. We're going to sign you up for that just because she needed things, activities to keep me occupied while she was working. So, um, you know, I grew up doing a lot of different activities and I ended up joining the boys club of New York and the boys club of New York was an after school program that after, um, like three o'clock when school got out until maybe eight or nine o'clock at night, you could stay there. You can do, you know, homework, um, acad- uh, academics, you could do athletics. Um, they just taught you a lot about life. There's this, um, program called smart moves that kind of taught you about sex education and real sex education about actually using condoms and AIDS and um, STDs and like how to protect yourself and pregnancy all the things that sometimes we may not get as young people so fast forward being at the boys club for many many years from elementary school um, age I got a scholarship to like a boarding school and I got I went to a boarding school in Connecticut and uh, my mom sent me away and this is interesting because, like, throughout my life, like, you know, I was pretty straight-nosed kid. I didn't really get in too much trouble. Um, and I kind of, like, stayed on the straight and in terms of uh, not getting caught up in certain activities going on in my neighborhood. But I was really close to it. But when I went to Kent, and this is a school called Kent, and it's in Connecticut, um I remember the first couple of years they had me like, they were really excited to me, for me to be there, not just me, but like any minority to be there. Most all, mostly all of the minorities were on scholarship or had some type of um, assistance to get to that mm. type of education. So they were, it was like, you know, maybe 20, 25 of us in a school of like 550 students. And we all stuck together and we all kind of supported each other, but then the school would like be excited about having us there and, and for me particularly <laughs> they would put me on the poster and I would be in, mm, I, I, I was tokenizing
0: tokenizing I was, you
1: yeah for yeah. lack like of you know mm-hmm. representation they wanted to make sure that that was shown you know for the prospective students or just anybody coming in so I had all of that and I was like that kid in my first couple of years so I remember and I went to the school I was like short and skinny I was like five three, and I was like 100 pounds, and I was like, you know, my voice didn't change yet and all these things. I didn't have any facial hair. So it was like, but then, <laughs> as normal boys do, you become, you know, young men, and I grew up where I started growing. I, I grew three inches every year, like three to four inches every single year in high school, and, uh, you know, just started to get a little facial hair, not too much, like, at that time, but I... My appearance changed, right? And that was, like, probably the first time I noticed that people treated me differently Mm. based on my appearance who already knew me, right? Mm. Because I understood the world. I understood history. And my mom did a good job of teaching me, you know, about um, the history of African Americans and our country and and things like that. But um, that was the first time I probably really faced it where the year before I'm on the poster and you guys are putting me in the video... And, you know, having me as a representation of the school and then in the next year, the ne- the same people, the same administration, are, you know, is looking at me a little different just because of the way I look and how tall I am now. Now I'm 5'10", you mm. know, and, you know, things are a little different as far as the perspective. So uh, I think about that a lot when I raise my son just because he's a little boy and he has... I want. I don't want to rob him of the freedom of being a little boy where he can just mm. be, you know, rambunctious and energetic and do what he needs to do to, to, to express himself. But then I'm also conscious of the fact that people, the same people who are looking at him now and saying, oh, he's so cute and he's so adorable and blah, blah, are the same people who are going to be scared of him potentially in 12 to, you know, 14 years. So... Uh-
0: I I could not tell you how much I agree with, um, you know, what you're saying and how that that sort of changes. First, I want to say two things. The first thing is shout to your wife. Major plug.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. She's the best.
0: <laughs> a pre, you know, definitely supporting you know, the women on this platform. So big shout out to her. Um, and, and all the things that she's accomplishing um, in her professional career, and then second, I want to just just say how much I can resonate with how that change happens for black boys, and for my own son, um, that change happened for him. You know, the, the the change from become being a boy and being able to participate in childlike things, and to being seen in my mind as a man by the outside world at eight. Mm. You know, and it happened at his school where he was choked by a middle aged man Mm. at his school. White man. He's at a predominantly white school. No one said anything. And had it not been for a concerned parent, I would have never even knew that it happened. And so I won't get into all the details because that's not what this episode is about. But I just wanted to tell you how how true that statement is that you just said. That one you know and it and it happens for for you, luckily it happened for you when you were in high school. Right. You know, for my son, it happened at eight. You know, and I think it's just a testament to how the world is evolving. I don't think racism is 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 getting worse. I think it's getting taped. I think it's getting more publicity. I think the current you know, whatever the political climate is in the world we live in either exacerbates it or masks it, depending on your political views at the time. But I just I just wanted to say, you know, that that I understand where you're coming from and and it does happen. And so how did you, you know, knowing that there was a change from being like, for lack of better words, the cute boy to being Troy, the man. How did that um, show up for you in the workplace? Because, you know, as you become an adult and now you're a man man and you get your first job. I mm-hmm. mean, um, speaking of that, where was your first job in corporate America? What were you doing? Um, and then what, you know, how was your perception of the culture around you and how do you feel the culture around you you perceived you in return?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's heavy. I mean, I think, um, sorry to hear about your son. That's that's just crazy. That's just no child needs to be experienced needs to experience anything like that. So, you know, God bless him. But um, yeah, I mean a lot of it is, to your point, it, 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 it's it's parallel through young young age, young men turning into young men, uh, young boys turning into men, um, young adults, right? Kind of in that eighteen twenty one, the young twenties age, and then as you mentioned, even in corporate America, past that, right? So um, mm-hmm. I've had experiences all type of um, in all in all of those different points in my life so to answer your question about like corporate america like my first job after college was it was, a, it was a combination i had i had a business so i started a business in college right um i i went to school in, at north carolina state university so i had been away already at the private school and the boarding school so i had been i was used to being away from home um and i and it was a really good opportunity for me to um get out of my house there was a lot of things going on so I was able to um, focus on what I needed to do to develop myself so in college um, I just saw a business opportunity where I was from New York and I was going down south to North Carolina and everybody was asking me at that time like oh can you get me this can you get me that from New York and I was like oh okay sure and then it just became something where like the New York appeal of access to like at that time like, the biggest thing was like mixtapes (laughs) <laughs> mixtapes and Avarex <laughs> jackets. <laughs> so this is like the this is like the late nineties, right? Uh I went to school in like ninety nine there and then I started like seeing like I could sell them as opposed to just like being a mule or <laughs>
0: you would pick up the mixtapes and then bring them back to NC uh NC State. Um and then that began your sort of entrepreneurial journey. Um how long were you an entrepreneur and then how did you make that transition into corporate America?
1: Right. Um, yeah, so I did that. I did the my, my business for four years. So I started it uh, probably in the middle of my junior year or sophomore, junior year. And then I did it for two years after I graduated. So uh, my first job in corporate America was actually working at a bank. So it was simultaneously while I was running my business. So I launched my business on on NC State's campus I was able to utilize a lot of the resources and the network that just comes with being a college student and I saw like there was a difference between the capabilities and the opportunity that I was able to use as a student Mm -hmm. as on campus versus when I went to corporate America and found out that like there's certain limitations and things that I wasn't allowed to do or couldn't do because of who I didn't know or what I didn't, you know, have experience in or et cetera. So that was a big...
0: Let's stop there. So what were some of those things? Because yes, (laughs) what are some of those things? (laughs)
1: So I think coming from New York and coming from a background of somebody who's always thinking like business minded or as a, like a, as an entrepreneur, I'm not thinking with any limits on terms of what I can do. So college was great for me. I was able to utilize like, like free student legal services. For example, we set up LLCs and we set up like 501c3 non-profits. Um, so 501c3 um, nonprofits. profits So it was like, a lot of things that normally, you know, in the real world, you have to pay somebody to do, um, even like uh, reserving a venue to host an event. Like we were able to get all the venues and all the space free on campus mm-hmm. because we were students and we were part of, and we, we actually set up a student organization. I set up a student, I founded, I co-founded a student organization called Young Black Entrepreneurs. Um, and that was like a, um, a, a vehicle that I was able to basically house my company through and deliver the products and services that we were selling but then also other entrepreneurs on campus so we became like a network of young black entrepreneurs where we were um it didn't have to be a business major it didn't have to be somebody who was business minded but if something i had a passion for something that you can turn that and translate that into a business so we did entrepreneurial training um education and training and then we also did hands-on experience so we had like a dual um i guess um Uh, learning in terms of how people would experience entrepreneurship, both educationally and learning from people who've already done it, but then Mm -hmm. also like actually doing events and hosting events, uh, uh, doing events and hosting um, uh, fundraisers. So when I left school, when I graduated, Uh, I was still doing my business, and the first corporate job I got was in a bank, and I was a teller. I was a teller in a bank, and I actually did some back office work for um, a credit union and then a regional bank. So I was, and particularly when I was um, working on the platform side in the regional bank, I actually hated that job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The reason I, I hated that job was just because of the differences that, as I noticed that the things that, as I mentioned, I wasn't able to express ideas or have a say in, uh, directing the way I felt we can improve on things versus, um,
0: being in the machine. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: And so one of the, one of the things that you brought up that I think will be interesting for Um, people of color to hear I don't know if this especially those starting their first job because I think as you grow in your professional career and build a reputation and get people to understand your different skills talents gifts and abilities you get a little bit more leeway to be a little bit more entrepreneurial but I think that when you're starting out as you mentioned you started as a teller I also started as a teller in my professional career and I think that it you have to understand where you are in the corporate structure and then how you are perceived based on your job title. And Correct. so I think it has nothing to do with intellectual capability. You didn't like Troy the individual didn't change. Amira, the individual didn't change. my my brain didn't change. I am who I am. It was just the title. And so right. because we were tellers, you know, you don't have the same reign over decision making as you would if you're a branch manager or if you're a vp or if you're mm-hmm. a avp versus, versus an officer and mm-hmm. so for some of you who don't know i want to just like give a little bit of background about that so there's different levels within every organization um they, you know that you can be a director you can be a SVP, an svp a ed executive director an officer um you know or no title at all and then based on what those titles are depending on where you work they could shape your ability to contribute or not contribute to the organization And so Mm -hmm. for you as a as a man of color, did you feel that your ability to um, engage more or to speak out more um, grew as you grew in your professional titles? Or do you think it just was building a reputation? Do you think it was making the right relationships? Like, what do you think was that? What was that shift for you?
1: Yeah. So I think that it's. um there's a difference, right? And I think you, you articulated it really well. It it, it is based on your title, where you're at in the bank or, or in any company um, to kind of determine your level of expected input or um, like you said, power. So for me, I wasn't necessarily thinking that way because I came from an entrepreneurial background and, you know, In in terms of me making decisions, I just made decisions that was best for the company Mm -hmm. and best for the business, right? So me as a teller or me as a lower level employee coming to any position, I didn't see myself as that. Mm -hmm. I saw myself as somebody who obviously had to do the role that I was, um, you know, assigned to do or to take the task that I was um, performing seriously and um, try to do as well as possible. But I didn't want to limit like my input on the business itself just based on that. So that was a, a, a big shift for me because I had to understand that not everybody thinks like that. Right. There are certain leaders, certain managers, certain people who are going to give anybody, regardless of title, regardless of position, regardless of how much money you make, the opportunity to input and make the business better. Not like to make themselves better, make the business better. And they'll take an idea from anybody. And there's other people. The probably majority of people in corporate America who are like, no, it's not your place. You can't say this. Don't say this to this person and don't suggest this or don't like they they thwart um, creativity and, um, you know, just eat, like um, creating ideas to make things better. So um, I learned that probably in my first role and, and even at the bank, like it was just it was it was interesting because it was a regional bank. It was based in like the, the Carolinas. And I was, I remember there were so many experiences that I had where I was one of the only few Blacks there at mm. that bank. And I remember, like, if I was not there in the bank at that time that certain things happened, um, the experiences of Black customers would have been a lot more different.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Right? So then it's like, I realized, like, this is not just a job but it's also important to be represented in places where we need to you know patron in, in in society we need to be in you know have bank accounts and we need to have financial literacy we need to have all of these things to operate cuz not everybody's going to be an entrepreneur not everybody is going to follow a, a certain path and the representation of just me as a teller like not even like having any power like helped certain black people just being there and that was like something that even now not being an entrepreneur not having my own like active business but being in the corporate world i take very seriously i, mm. I just and my responsibility to like like not even not represent but like kind of advocate for a sen- in a sense for people who are going to potentially be unfairly judged or um criticized.
0: The great Maya Angelou said, come as one, represent 1000. That is the very truth for a lot of people of color in corporate America. You arrive as yourself, but because as you said so eloquently, you are one, if any, the only one in the room you feel like the weight of, everybody, of of what they will perceive Black people as is on your shoulders. And that if you screw up, you've somehow ruined it for, for everyone to come behind you. And I know what that weight is like. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy for you to share what that was like for you as, as a man of color. Um, and then, you know, so when we think about about power struggles and and all of that. How did you get out of that regional bank into a more traditional bank and like go for promotions? How did you get that confidence? Because it could be discouraging um, Mm -hmm. if you're not a strong individual. So how did you build up that confidence? And then did you have people in your corner at your organization supporting you? And if you did, how did you find them?
1: Right. Yeah, I think um, for me it happened really organically. And um, I know a lot of people say that, like, and it's hard to kind of think past your immediate need. Like if you need to find a job or you need, you know, money and you need to do what you got to do, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But the way it's been successful for me has been organically driven by the things I'm passionate about. So um, me as a, And I kind of pieced this together together later. I didn't understand like how this all connected, but like me having my own business representing artists and being like a talent manager and a a label head was really just me advocating for those artists and saying these artists have a place, they deserve the platform to be heard and I'm gonna do anything in my power to help promote that, right? So that's 100% how I stayed in financial services, not how I got in, like I was just thinking I have my business on this. I have my business and I just need a job. That's going to be pretty easy and I'm not going to have to think too much. And I could just, spend, you know, dispense all my energy into my company. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, I could just be a teller and I could just do that. With my eyes closed and I, and, and I could do, you know, basic banking operational activities and I'm, I'm good. But the translation and how that stuck with me was just because of the advocacy of me mm-hmm. representing for people as a, uh, As a banker, as a financial specialist, as a trusted advisor, as the industry calls us, right? Mm -hmm. So I use that as my guiding force to help me get promoted, help me find new opportunities, and help me um, go to the next level, really. And when I led by doing what's best for the client and doing things like and really advocating for the behalf of the people who I represent. Um, both, like, as clients and also as my culture, it always worked out for me where the right position and the right opportunity came up at the right time, right? And that's so hard because, as I mentioned, like, you could be focused because you have to pay those bills, you have to do something, and you got to, you know, do what you got to do and take this job that maybe you don't like. And I've been there in that situation, too. But in terms of me progressing in the my career with the financial services, that's how it's happened for me um so i always have led with that
0: so you you kind of if i can regurgitate what i think you're saying is that you kind of led by your purpose you let your purpose guide you um to your next role now did you did you need people at work to advocate for you to get those positions or do you feel that you were able to achieve them you know without any support from anyone else
1: no i mean absolutely i had people who um advocated for me and acted as mentors to me. And the the interesting thing I think about mentor mentorship and mentoring um, is that it has to be, in my opinion, and this is not, you know, maybe it's different people's opinions, but I think it has to be organic and it has to be something that you really connect with the person on in terms of either the way you approach business or the way you think about business or... Um your goals you have to have something there has to be some type of commonality that brings people together, so when I would network and you know just like anybody else you're meeting upper management or you 're meeting people who are in higher positions than you, I would introduce myself and meet them, but you know, they knew who I was based on just the performance that I had given them within the position, right, but like the mentors that I had. Were people who I really connected with on a deeper level. Where I had a good mentor. Her name was Barney Jones. Her name is Barney Jones, actually. Um, she mentored me, um, and did she you, happened to. Be-
0: did you find her, or did she find you? Like, how did that relationship develop?
1: So yeah, this is an interesting story. She actually interviewed me for a job to work at her branch, and at that time, it was my first. I was up for my first promotion, so like I had uh, started in a branch. Like this is. When I was a licensed banker, I was a licensed banker, had my investment licenses, and I was doing uh, small business banking. And it was a small business specialist role in her branch. And she already had somebody hired for the job, actually. So she had somebody hired. They said, Oh, there's only two openings, but we're filling one, so you can go to the other branch, this other smaller branch. And I was like, All right, fine, whatever. And I was, I was, you know, going to interview for that one. But they said, just talk to Barney and you know, because she still is interviewing people, even though she has already filled the role, but that she's, you know, still going through that process and we want to make sure you've gotten, you know, to interview with multiple people and not just one manager that you're gonna work for. I said, fine, that's you know, whatever. So it wasn't like an it wasn't so from her perspective and my perspective, there was no expectations from this interview. There was no like, oh, you know, you're a real candidate. It was more like, okay, I already have somebody picked and, you know, you, you're, you already know you're going somewhere else, but we're just going to go through the formalities. Um, so we met and we connected on everything but, let me say everything but, but we connected mostly, probably 90% of that conversation was on life and philosophy and approach towards how we do things. And she is somebody who has a high level of standard and is a positive motivator and she's somebody who tries to um just kind of push people to the highest level and i share that with her so we just talked about a lot of stuff like that and we connected at the end of the day she still had somebody she was going to hire and she had made a like a commitment to and i was fine with that and i wasn't thinking i was going to work for her branch at, at all but it was just somebody that i connected with fast forward a month to later that person ended up not taking that job. They ended up leaving the bank completely and taking a job at another bank. I guess they were interviewing externally as well as internally. So then this opening came up like suddenly, and then it was a bigger branch, bigger opportunity and they needed to fill it quicker quickly. Um, So I was already somebody interviewed for it. I was in pipeline. Instead of moving to the smaller branch, they moved me to this larger branch. Um, And I ended up working for her. So,
0: so, the point you, so is like,
1: you can find your mentor anywhere. <laughs> right. So the point is like I can't say that, you know, I got lucky because she was my man like she interviewed me for a job that was my manager, but like the conversation really was about something that was total like it was just all around everything else. And then, you know, she taught me a lot about your reputation and your and and your perception like the way people perceive you and your reputation is actually more valuable than your production Mm. and i didn't learn that until i met her i was always like somebody who's like results driven and like i gotta make this number and if i make this number then you know yeah like nobody can tell me anything i gotta chip on my shoulder like i'm just like i could do whatever i want to do right and thinking i can just do that but in reality she was like it's she taught me that you What people think about you and how they view you is way more important about you getting your next job or the next role. And I think
0: I think that's true for both men and women of color. I talk about that very concept on my episode, um, How to Build Your Brand, which is my second episode in this series. I talk about that exact concept. And that concept is your what like your individual, like your internal brand is different than your perceptive brand. And I go into what exactly what you said, because it's 100 percent percent true that, um, you know, there's this air. I don't want to. You know what? I was about to go down a rabbit hole, but I'm not going to do that. All right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um, But. You know, there, I do think that is absolutely true that you have to be focused on how other people perceive you. And then, how do you balance that? Like, how do you not bring Troy from Jamaica, Queens to work? And how do you let Troy, Neil, the entrepreneur, the businessman, you know, how do you find that balance? Or do both show up to work? Um, And what do you think about the whole concept of authenticity as Mm -hmm. it relates to perception?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think ultimately authenticity wins every time and like everybody else i think um well no i'm not gonna say like everybody else but like a lot of people um i'm ambitious and i want to do more than i than i am tasked to do at all times it's just the way i'm i'm my dna is built so There are times when you feel like you have to, uh, you know, say the right thing or, you know, not ruffle the feathers or, you know, play the, you know, not the the non-disruptor so that you could just position yourself for the next opportunity. But in reality, and life reminds me of this all the time, is that it never works. It never works. If you're not 100% authentic, even if you get the opportunity, even if it comes your way, you're never going to be fully as successful as you fully as you as you can be because you're not going to be able to be fully yourself. You're going to mm-hmm. be able to. You're going to have to always play that role or that position or you know act the way that you think people want you to act. So, as I've gone through the ranks, I think that it's important to kind of check in with myself and make sure that I am being authentic. And the way I try to do that is just like through. Um, the things that I speak out on like as somebody who's in a role like mine where your production and your um, results are like the number one, the, yeah, the most important thing as far as your job is concerned. I try to use that to my advantage if I need to. So like when I've just done a great job or I've just brought in a big deal or I've just, you know, did something extraordinary that helps the business then I try to speak on things that are important to me at that time because Mm. I use that platform to say, hey, everybody's happy with me now and cheering me on and everybody's my friend. and Everybody's saying how great I am. So let's talk about something real. And most of the time it falls on deaf ears, but at least I can do that knowing that people are going to know what's really important to me. They're not going to just think, like, I could just be a top producer or or a performer and I'll be happy with the commission that you pay me. I want things to be – I want other things beyond that. So I'm going to use those platforms to try to – well, if I get the platform, I'll try to speak on things like that if I can.
0: That's that's very, very, very encouraging, Troy. And something that you mentioned that I want to make sure we dig into is – advocating for your own professional goals um, to your manager so let's stop there for a minute and i want you to go into detail about what Mm -hmm. that looks like for you as a man at work and like how did you i know you mentioned you you waited until you know the 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 skies were clear there was no clouds it was perfectly sunny and you just had a big win but how did you prepare for those conversations is more what i would love the audience to know
1: yeah. though. So that, <laughs> so you actually wrote up a really good point because by doing it the way I've done it actually probably has hurt me in terms of positioning myself for the next position uh, or the next opportunity because I'm always waiting on the results to be able to like, you know, say this or say that or to like feel I'm validated in my mind because of my expectations to, to, to position, to put myself up for the position or for an opportunity, but in reality, um, what I'm still learning and I'm, you know, constantly a student of life. I just think that you have to, um, you have to go in it without fear of the repercussions of saying what you really want and being authentic that way. So I think that it's kind of balancing also the having a good mentor as well. So like, if you have a good mentor who knows, you and knows what you want to do then it's easier obviously to articulate to them and then they help you through that process of saying this is the way you go about it this is the people you talk to this is how you are viewed or this is the the things that you need to get there um but then you like to your point you have to speak it into existence because if you don't say this is what i want to do people will act like they've never heard of it when it's time when the time comes Mm -hmm. right like i've 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 been in positions where you know, I've had great managers supporting me, top performing banker, been, you know, awarded national sales trips and, you know, president's clubs, all these things. And, you know, me and my mentors and my manager and the people who are supportive of me know everything I want to do. But outside of that, I never really stepped beyond that that first tier of of networking. So I think you have to have that first inner tier of mentors and managers or or just that close knit support system. And then you have to kind of go beyond that and still like to the people who are maybe two degrees or three degrees away from you and say, this is what I want to do. And this is something I plan to do. And it doesn't have to be so um, uh, it, it doesn't have to be so like. Calculate it. yeah 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 mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be like exact right you could just say this is what i want to do one day this is something I'm, i want this is the direction i want to take my career and that's it like but having that constant it has to be consistent though but having that consistent um you know like um articulation Com- of
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, of that thought or that goal is another step towards progressing in, in a professional setting
0: I agree with you 100%. You touched on three hot things that I got to ask you a little bit more about. Yeah. The first one is with your mentor who was so, you know, great to you, did you um feel compelled to or feel that you had to add value to her as well? Or did you feel like she didn't have any expectations of you and she was happy to just continue to just mentor you? Um, as an act of service the second question is do you think there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the third question mm-hmm. is um oh my gosh i just forgot my third question oh my third question is um once you got those jewels from your mentor on how you could better position yourself in the workplace did you pass that information along to other black men mm-hmm. at work so those are my three good questions.
1: good question. so the first question was repeat the first question. It was the, um, do I felt I needed to get back? Um,
0: to... it was, did you feel you? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. To
1: her as my mentor. Um, yes. Yeah, so I felt the sense of responsibility that if you are going to take your time to mentor me or to share any knowledge to me, uh, or take a liking to me, like that I have, uh, a sense of duty to perform really, really well under, uh, your mentorship and then also to pay it forward. So it kind of answers the first and the third question. Um,
0: Mm hmm.
1: I've always been somebody who tries to share information and um, put people on, as as you as I, as, as I say, um, and just kind of like give people little nuggets and give them like the blueprint to how to be successful. So in mentoring, mentoring myself, that's like my greatest like gift as like um, so that's the greatest gift I can receive is like me helping somebody else. So me helping young black men, particularly in retail banking and business banking, um, has been something I've enjoyed and something that I take pride in because I understand the things they're up against. I understand the environment they're in. I understand the the system that is set up to define success or non-success. So me being able to do it myself is great. But me being able to show somebody else how to do it and show somebody else with their own skills and talent and their own unique approach and personalities and, you know, differences from me. You don't have to, I don't want somebody to be a carbon copy of Troy. I want them to be Jermaine. I want them to be Miguel. I want them to be Marquise. I want them to be themselves in a successful space and find that way. So I take a lot of pride in doing that and helping these guys. But then also the people I've mentored like just kind of letting them know the expectation is that they're supposed to continue to pass that along. You know, mm,
0: that's that big part, because that I part. think a lot of
1: people can can mm. get that mentorship or, you know, even have like a sponsor, like you said, and, and um, have somebody where I think the difference is to answer question two is sponsorship is somebody who could walk you in the room. Right. Mentor is somebody who can set mm. you up, get you ready, you know, and you're off on you. you they can get you ready for the date. They'll, you know, get you the outfit they'll make sure you you're you dressed nice it'll make sure you you know everything is where it needs to be. Send you out the door. The sponsor is the person who walks you into the party with them and, and is like, this is my person. Meet them right so mm-hmm. mentors I've had a lot of sponsors um I've had some too and, and, and interestingly enough, like a lot of my sponsors have been non black um oh, of
0: course <laughs> of course they are because. They hold all the yeah. The top so positions. my my sponsors. <laughs> I mean, not not that black people don't, because there are some you know some unicorns right, out right, there, right? For sure, for sure, some amazingly talented ones at that. So I don't want to slight them, but yeah, a lot yeah. of a
1: lot of my sponsors have been non-black, and the interesting thing about it I've learned, and it's something I'm trying to pass on to like my mentees and people I I, I coach and, and and support is that the expectation in my head is thinking like, oh man, I'm gonna have to like super impressed this person for them to like be a sponsor for me and in reality it's not that way <laughs> you know like you in my head and this is just maybe for me I'm thinking a black person or person of, of the culture of the color or the same color as me can relate a little bit more to me and maybe it's like a little bit of a not an easier path but it's like the understanding of where I'm at is not going to be such a challenge they could understand me from 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 jail uh, and then I think probably like falsely and sometimes, sometimes it's true, but falsely like that other totally different experiences me, totally different background, totally different upbringing, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge for them to understand me and where I'm at and to try to be a sponsor for me, which is actually not true. It's actually where I've experienced that I don't have to go and like be, you know, the super black employee and the the, the, you know, I don't have to be yes, I was going to say super negro to to (laughs) To, to, to be, quote-unquote, worthy of the sponsorship of somebody who's non-Black. And that's the thing that blew my mind. Because I was just like, yo, this person is just like, they just cool with me. They just rock with me. They just like, I don't have to, like, impress them. They just, like, cool. And they, 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 they see the value in me. So I think a lot, it, it goes to, like, and I think in, in terms of women, um, I try to encourage a lot of women business owners and women professionals to do this as well like you're, you're already enough right you're enough you you don't need mm-hmm. to like be something else that you're not you already are good enough and a lot of my non-black sponsors have taught me that in just terms of like the the thing I didn't have to jump through hoops to like get their acceptance
0: yeah no I would agree in all of my to your point all of my sponsors uh with the exception of one the devil was <laughs> about to make a liar out of me but not today all of my sponsors at work, with the exception of one, have been um, all white. I did have one African-American female, very high-level executive, uh, sponsor me, which which I was forever. I did not appreciate that at the time. I talked about that in my How yeah. to Be a Good Mentee episode. I did not appreciate what that value that held at the time because I was very young in my career, and very just green behind the ears. And um, if I had realized the gift that God had given me (laughs) back then, I would have handled this situation a lot differently. So I'm so happy that you stopped and you gave us that that knowledge there because it's so true. When you find people who you think can help you, walk you into the room, for lack of a better term, and say, this is my God, those are the people who you have to have confidence to approach. And you have to feel okay to just ask. Like a lot of people don't ask. And you don't have a mentor, not because you don't deserve one. But literally, right. because you did not ask for one. And so, for some people like you, it does happen organically where you're mentoring you, you guys just find each other, and it's kumbaya. But for others, and I could speak only for myself, I'm not the most extroverted person. I always like to I think about <laughs> <up by> the <laughs> introvert. Right. Extrovert. Yeah. So, I'm extroverted when I have to be, but if yeah. I don't have to be, I'm introverted. And so, for me, I've never had the confidence, well, I've never had. Someone um, who was at a higher level than me just say and not that you have to be at a higher level to mentor because you can mentor laterally as well. And that that's very important, too. Um, but someone at a higher level than me, I never had the confidence to to or or to build a. You know, uh, I I listened to this woman. Her name's Carla Harris. She talks about the concept. She used to be an executive at Morgan Stanley. And she talked about this concept of currency. There's relationship currency and there's performance currency. And that's how you get a sponsor, by Mm. balancing both of those or even having a lot of one and some of the other. Me, I don't I never was able to build as much relationship currency as organically. So when I found my mentors, I would ask them. I literally would ask him and I think that that's okay too, you know, because you don't know what it's going to turn into. So I'm happy that you brought, you talked about your experience and especially you talked about the point of giving back to your uh, mentor and to being a, being a good representation of what she needs. So two more questions I have for you. Um, How did you handle microaggressions at work? Because I know that as a black man, you have to face them. And then, two, do you think that a glass ceiling exists for black men in corporate? Yeah,
1: um, microaggressions I think are (laughs) It's it's, it's just one of those things I think that, like, as a person of color, you always know they exist, and then when still when you get them, it throws you off. It's just like, damn, like, you really just said that, or you really like like, you know, acting this way, so it's 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 funny. Um they definitely exist and they definitely um let me think how I deal with them. I, I really it's kinda like weird because sometimes it depends what mood I'm in, right? Like my idealistic self would want to be like, yeah, I challenge everyone and I, you know, I I, I I educate and I do this and I do that. But sometimes it's like it catches me at a different time where I'm like focused on something else and this, this and that. So I don't get to address it at that time. But like what I always do, uh, well, at least I always try to do is address it at at some point, right? Because I think there's a good practice of not also jumping out on your emotions, you know, and not...
0: Mm -hmm. Well, um, but I'm sorry to cut you off, but could you speak about what a microaggression is or do you want... Because I just realized some people might... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Microaggression, I think,
1: is... um, maybe a comment or any type of reaction or a statement towards something that suggests a negativity towards another maybe group of people or like, like example is like, if somebody says, Oh, like that's so ghetto, you know, or like something where Mm. somebody makes a joke at the, at the slight of somebody else or another group of people, Right. And it's kind of like, I mean, that's kind of it. But then it's microaggression probably is more tailored towards you, like an individual. Right. So somebody could say something about like you particularly and related to like a stereotype or something like that. So that's kind of how I see microaggressions. Um, And I, I, I. it's just one of those things. Like again, it just depends on the mood and, and how I feel that day or what I got going on. But I always try to address it in a, in a manner that needs to, in the way it needs to be addressed at the time uh, or, at, or or at a later time. So, if if it's somebody like usually for me, if it's somebody like I'm really cool with or I have no aversion to having a frank conversation with, then we'll just have the conversation right there and just we'll go in. You know, I'll just go in on them and then they'll be like, "Whoa." troy you know (laughs) but then other people who you know maybe i don't really interact with them that much i don't work with them that much or i'm you know different area of of my company i'll figure out a better way to to kind of approach that so that's how i think about it and then glass ceiling for black men um yeah so i think it's interesting i think there is a i think it's a glass ceiling for black men and black women But I think that now companies are trying to like still do the same things they've done before, token black people in certain positions to say, oh yeah, we have one or we have two, or, you know, we have representation of people of color where it's not um, genuine. Sometimes it may be, maybe, you know, it's a genuine circumstance and that person got their merit, um, which they probably had to work twice as hard to even have the opportunity. But uh, I see like a lot of, Like even like, like the new hot thing now is like the diversity inclusion positions being black females. And I'm so happy that black females have these opportunities that I don't think there's anybody better than a black female to actually take those opportunities. But then it's like, are you just putting black females only in those positions and not in a CFO role or marketing role or, you know, a sales leader role or like the glass ceiling kind of is, is defined as like, you can do this, but you can't. We necessarily do that right do that so i think that's mm-hmm. kind of like where mm-hmm. we've been progressing as like a country like they'll say oh you know you could uh you can coach the t- you can you could be a player a-, a thousand percent and you can maybe coach the team but that's it you know you can't be a gm or you can't be the owner or you can't do this because those are things that are totally off limits to you so i think there's certain ways that black women and black men are being um kind of held down and you can, I guess, call that a glass ceiling.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that you have experienced it directly, pers- like personally in your own career? Like, was there a role that you went for that you thought you would be an excellent fit for? You don't have to describe the role, but did you have a time where you're like, I know for sure I will be an excellent fit for this role? I, I sharpened up my resume. I have the credentials, but yeah, it's just unattainable for me. Yeah, absolutely. It, I has mean, that I ever happened?
1: Oh. Uh, I've gone for leadership roles um, within organizations I've been a part of where I've faced basically my, my entire career has been like in a, in a sales front client, front facing role um, or a relationship manager. So in those type of positions, your numbers really speak for yourself in terms of how well you do. Um, but all of the other stuff, the mentoring and development of other bankers in my case um, have led me to opportunities where sales leaders, sales leadership positions have come about but i'm not even given the opportunity to interview for them and i'm talking about like not even interview for them like if i i'm a competitive person i'm like a you know i grew up like i said playing sports and i'm an athlete so if i lose the game that's fine but if i don't even get to play then it's like all right what's really what's really going on so um again i think it just goes to people having a perception of what they think you are. They think you're a producer, they think you're, you know, some do that, but as far as this other stuff, no, you can't, you can't do that. And they they kind of uh limit you and they kind of see you that way. So in my case, um I've <laughs> it's funny because I had I had people who were actually interviewed for um sales leader positions in my organization who said, "I'm not interested in this position." But you should interview Troy. He's really, really good, and he really he he actually mentors men, mentors me, and I'm you know a position higher than him. But he actually like is somebody I would work for, and they're like, oh, great, that sounds great. Oh yeah, we we have him on our radar, and then you know nothing comes about it. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens. So nothing
0: happened. You know, I have a, a list of um, I put I made this list, and it was kind of done in a you know satirical sort of way um but i i made this list of career limiting moves that generally yeah. only apply to people of color and one of the things that i had on my list was <laughs> too good at your job and i think that that i'm telling yeah. you that i learned that i've learned that the hard way Troy like you you know I worked at an organization I was a top producer number three in the company consecutively number one in New Jersey I mean I was going and going and going until you realize that your own success is your own detriment yeah. like you want to be good at your job right. but y'all want to be too good at your job because being too good at your job you become too valuable in the role you're in and and that's because human beings and that's not anything not to slight anyone but that's because human beings are designed Mm -hmm. to protect their own self-interest and so if you if you are if you hold so much value to them like in in a specific role then they're gonna protect their own self-interest so um between that and being a person of color i can only you know my Prayers are with you, and my heart goes out to you. But how did you, you know, how did you find that balance between it's no, it's no longer just timing because that they hit you with that too. Oh, it's timing. Wait for the right time. How did you find that balance of okay, the timing is is no more. Let's get down to the you know I gotta go. Like, what's that balance like for you, or what was? So I I, um
1: yeah I, I I'm somebody who disagrees with the thought that holding somebody back is going to protect your self interest because. In my mind, it's like if you hold the wrong person back, you're going to risk losing that person to another company or to, you know, wherever, um, benefit that that person potentially people, if you have a, an, an Amira who is number three in the bank, top in her state and killing it, crushing it, crushing it says, hey, you know what, I really want to, you know, develop people and make them better and, 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 and create, like, more opportunities for people to succeed like I, like I have, you're actually, like, thwarting your own success because America can create 10 mirrors if given the opportunity, right? With the right support and setup and, you know, opportunity. So, I feel like more people look at the glass half empty versus the glass half full. And if you take it that approach, then you can actually have greater success. But in reality, corporate America is not about success. It's just about people make like, I think what is correct about like that thought process, we're well, not correct, but like the way people think about that thought process is just about self-preservation. They don't care uh, literally about like the success mm-hmm. of the business. They just want to say, this is going to keep me in my job. So by me not moving Amira mm. or Troy or whoever into a position that... um. Is going to take away from my bottom line, bottom line temporarily. You know, I am too scared to do that for the benefits long term where, um, I'm thinking about just right now. I'm thinking about just this quarter. I'm just thinking about just this half of the year. So I need to have my numbers to do what I need to do so I can keep my job. And that's all I care about. And that's so whack because that's like the most like, uh, <laughs> like, like, uninspiring leadership that there is like just leadership just to maintain the status quo or just to not like piss off the top leadership or whatever it is that people are trying to protect their their quote-unquote job is so it's so whack you know so for me i just sum mm-hmm. it up but like to me i never accept that so like i just try to position myself where i'm not pigeon to somebody's control over me and that's difficult because I'm not rich and I don't have a bankroll to just do whatever I want to do. I have to still work for somebody. I still have to, you know, go up and and, and work for a company. Um, So I just try to make myself as flexible. And that's the reason I like, I got, I'm getting an executive MBA, you know, I'm doing things where I can navigate things outside of a company. You know, even with my wife's business, like I'm mm. my wife's business is basically our business together that we 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 formed and we've 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 done. So that's like the entrepreneurial side of me getting exercise. And then I have my educational and, you know, um this learning side and, and growth side with my executive. It's partly because I, I have a seek for knowledge and I really, really enjoy learning new things and being in an environment, especially I'm privileged to, you know, be at an Ivy League institution. It's like um, the research and the learning
0: and the, and the- we can send to the audience um, is you have to be responsible for your own success and don't let anybody have power over it. Um, and I think that's a great message to send and that you and that to keep learning. Um, I was very inspired to hear that you were going back to get your executive MBA because um you know, it gives you another license, as you mentioned, to to pivot if you need to or to continue to grow a, as you have. And so was that a part was getting your executive MBA a part of your long st- term strategy that you and your wife laid out? Or was it just like, um, I realized that because I don't have my executive MBA, I can't get the specific position at this specific company. And so maybe it's something that's going to benefit me just in my banking career. Or is it that, when you think about your long 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 term goals for for your family um what do you do you plan to leave corporate america and be an entrepreneur yeah, or like what yeah. what are your long So I think goals? It, for me it's a long term play
1: right like I don't need an executive MBA to do the job I've done I don't need an executive MBA or MBA to um potentially continue to move up incrementally through my career but the resources there are so rich that like for me it's just like it's like a kid at a candy store i just get to learn so much and learn from people who i have you know complete different backgrounds from but then also just people who i can connect with on an intellectual level and who like learning my, like my, like myself so it's part of that and then also the long term play right like in terms of what i long term it's definitely running a business very high level of of some type of large organization like an organization that has influence um, so the executive MBA helps me the adaptability where I can position myself for that, that CEO role or that managing director role later or sooner than later, hopefully. Um, but then it just also gives me the, the here and now knowledge and the first that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm searching for now. Right. So I actually started that quest like um, probably like two or three years before I actually enrolled in school. And it was very incrementally. It was very like, uh, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of getting a little bit in terms of leadership opportunities. What can I do for leadership? Maybe I'll take a course on leadership or, or like, not on leadership particularly, but like a course on this or a course on that to kind of round out my uh, my aptitude in in different things. So I started thinking about like education classes that they have. And then that kind of trans transformed into um well maybe i'll look at like an online you know um program where i can do something you know remote and i don't have to you know have a big commitment i can do it on my own time and then that translated to no you know what what are the the reasons i'm doing this and the reason the main reason i'm doing it is for the 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 network right so the network of people that i can tap into Mm. that can potentially inspire me or partner with, or I can have different interactions with. So that all translated to maybe I'll do a full-time program. And then after that, I was just like, if I'm going to do full-time, then I got to try to go to the best school I could possibly go to that I could possibly try to get into. And then that was Columbia because I'm in New York. So um, that process then translated to, you know, trying to study for the GMAT and and figuring out like how I'm going to happen within my life so um, it was very very incremental and another a quick story on that was like that final push to actually go and get a full master's degree versus like a certificate or just a class here or there like an executive MBA executive education class it was actually inspired by one of my, um, my mentees so I had a mentee who was a few years younger than me and you know very accomplished guy he, he was able to um, bring himself up from a top performing banker In one position, to where he transitioned to another role, and he struggled initially. It was a different type of role, all in business banking, and he had he had a struggle with uh, Mm. just the aspects of when you're dealing with larger companies and you're managing relationships versus being a sales executive in a branch. When you're sales in a branch, it's quick, it's fast, it's whoever's in 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 the room, and you're doing what you're doing your thing. Versus actually being a relationship manager, where you're building relationships, you're building trust, you're you're doing more uh, long-term approach. So anyway, he became the number one relationship manager in his position um, after a few years of him developing his skills. So he helped me a lot to help him out, but he had it all in him. I just helped him do it. He in turn was really, once he kind of saw that like, yeah, I can Mm -hmm. do this, and I'm not saying that it was this this only thing, he realized I want to go back to school and get my JD MBA. And he was kind of like tearing on the fence. I don't know if I should do it. I think I'm too old and this, this, and that, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like his number one cheerleader in trying to convince him to go ahead and do the thing that he's meant to do, which is to be a lawyer and to get his MBA. And so when he did that, it was so, such a great, it was like when he got into school and he was um, accepted and he was, like, so happy and he was so focused at that time. It kind of, like, triggered for me. Wow, like, that's actually really cool. When I was teetering on the on the executive education thing and then I kind of decided, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it all the way. I can't tell somebody to go ahead and go all the way and then I'm, like, kind of, like, you know, just one foot in, one foot out. If I'm going to go do it, I got to do it all the way. So that's what led to the whole
0: executive MBA like pursuit. Thank you for that story. um, I'm so, so, I mean, two things came across there. One, you're taking your own advice and you're leading by example. And I think that that's uh, something that a lot of, a lot of men of color can learn from is that, you know, seek the resources around you, seek the other men around you, who might be willing to give back, who might be willing to encourage you to move forward. And then the second thing, which you did not say, which I hope oh, you're yeah. taking advantage of is tuition oh, yeah, yeah, reimbursement. Yeah. Are you taking yeah, advantage yeah, yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Are you using it? Okay. <laughs> Cause for everybody out there, tuition reimbursement is when your job pays for yep. you to get your undergraduate or graduate degree. If your job offers it, take advantage of it. <laughs> you could be, you could be like Troy in Columbia, building your network, yeah. branching all out, out here. <laughs> Um, So one one last question before we go. And that question is, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself?
1: To your point of um, seeking out mentorship and sponsorship, that would probably be the number one thing I would preach to myself. And I'm still working on that. I'm not like perfect. I'm still, you know, a person who has a lot of pride. And I feel like to kill myself, you know, to make it happen, I can get help. So advice would be from early on, like, hey, even if you don't feel you have it all together, even if you know you don't have it all together and you know you're not ready, still reach out and just talk to people and just say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this or what's the experience look like. And, you know, it's weird because I think about it like when people approach me, like I have tellers and this and blah, blah, blah. And I always so willing to share and give them advice or like, you know, help them. So. Why wouldn't somebody do that for me as well, right? Like somebody probably would. So I have to stop. If I could give myself advice, I would say like get out of my own head and stop thinking that somebody's not going to be as receptive or helpful in the process. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if they're not, it's not a knock on you. And if they are, then it's just going to be a greater, you know, opportunity to to do what you really want to do.
0: And with that said we'll end the conversation thank you so much Troy for your advice today I greatly appreciate it and thank you to everyone who tuned in to this episode of with that said as always you can find me on Spotify SoundCloud Google Podcasts Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen